0: You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of C.A. Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life The light has come. Well, good morning, everyone. First off, how cool is that video? Right? Uh, There's a guy named Jeremiah Justice who animated that whole thing, goes to our church, goes to our evening service. And uh, can we just give a hand for the people that worked on that? That's so, so cool. There's actually, there's an amazing media and kind of creative team that works behind the scenes doing graphics and videos and all the rest of it. Many of them are volunteers, but use their gifts to build the church. And so just so incredibly grateful for all of you who are in this room that are part of that. So cool. Well, we are in the second weekend of Advent and uh, we're walking through the series that we're in called um, The Light Has Come, looking at John chapter one. And uh, last week, Cam kicked off this sermon series with a ton of energy Looking at those first three verses in the passage, uh, we talked about starting in verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning. And uh, oh my gosh, just so much rich theology packed into those first few verses. And then even in verse three, it says, through him, all things were made without him, Sorry, without him nothing was made that has been made. Here's the essence of what we talked about last week. If if you weren't here, if you forget. John the author starts out his gospel account very intentionally with those same words all the way back from Genesis chapter one, verse one. He starts it with in the beginning. And what he's doing, I love this. What John is doing is he's, he's starting his Christmas story not 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into the world and was born into a manger in Bethlehem. But he actually starts his, his Christmas story all the way back at the very beginning of time. And he says that the Word, who he'll later identify as Jesus, he says the Word was there and actively involved in creation, the creation of all things. That he was with God, but more than that, that he was God, that he is God. And that through him, everything in the universe was created. And that adds so much depth to the Christmas story. So much beauty. You know, we can't forget that the one who created everything, the creator of all things, would would actually come and would live among us, his creation. Man, the humility of God that he would put on flesh and dwell among us. I love the way that the song Arrival, it's a song by Hillsong Worship. I love the way they they say it. He says, who is God that he would take our frame? The artisan inside the paint, the one who has no start and knows no end, became confined to time and tense. You know, that's the beauty of the Christmas story. In other words, that, that the God who, who came up with the whole idea of bodies and ligaments and muscles and blood thro- flowing through our bodies, he actually put one on. He came to live among us. He came to save us. So so last week, we explored the transcendent nature of of who Jesus is, the divinity of Jesus and his role in creation. And then this week, we're we're going to be looking at the, the next two verses. John chapter one, we're going to look at verse four and five. And here's what John writes in those verses. He says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, these verses are so packed full of depth. John makes sure that every single word in this passage counts. So I want to work through it pretty slow. We're going to go kind of section by section, a few words at a time. We'll start with those first four words. In him was life. You know, when I first started working through this text over this last week in preparation for this talk, I assumed that in verse four, uh, right there, as John says, in him was life. I assume that what John was saying is, is essentially just doubling down on what he said for the first three verses. You know, He created all things. All things came from him. That He, he put life and he put but breath in our lungs. And, and of course, he did do that. Of course, he is the author of life. But it turns out that verse four isn't just a restating of, of Jesus' involvement in creation. See, in the original Greek, and you might not know this, the, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And then the New Testament was written in Greek. And so in the original Greek, there's two different words for life. The first word is bios. This is where we get biology from. And bios speaks of, of physical life, of, of breath in our lungs, our hearts beating, blood flowing through our veins. That's bios life. And that's what the first three verses of John chapter one are about. God is the one who's responsible for bios life. But then John introduces this other word. He introduces zoe life. And he says, not only does bio life come from from Jesus, but so does zoe life. And this zoe life is defined as meaning or purpose. I think that's something that all humans desire and long for. A life that actually means something. A life with purpose. See, there's this intrinsic desire in every human heart to do something meaningful with our lives, to, to spend the, the, the years, the decades, however long we have on earth on something that, that actually matters. And this quest for Zoe life, for meaning, it's actually what drives a lot of people to come to, to church, to check out a church or to, to Alpha, a program that we run throughout the weeks, asking, why am I here? Or does life on earth mean anything? Or, or am, am I just taking up space and, and oxygen in the universe? Maybe you're even here today and you're asking those exact questions. Maybe you're, maybe you're saying, why was I born? Does, does anyone even care that I was born? John makes this case that meaning and purpose, Zoe life, are, are found in Jesus. I love the way that St. That Augustine talks about that quest for meaning. He talks about it in one of his confessions and he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He says our hearts are restless. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way before, felt restless, but I think restlessness might be a defining marker of our modern age. Maybe another way to talk about restlessness is anxiety. Like if Augustine wrote those same words today, I think he'd probably say our hearts are anxious until they find their, their rest in you. Do you know anyone who struggles with anxiety in our world? you know, A recent study said that over 30% of adults in North America uh, struggle with an anxiety disorder at least at one moment in their life. And based on my anecdotal experience, those statistics actually sound quite low. I don't know what their criteria was, but, but it seems to be much more than that, at least among youth and young adults living today. And even the low grade anxiety that that many of us experience on a regular basis, I think it's largely rooted in this fact that we're trying to find Zoe life. We're trying to find meaning. We're trying to find Zoe life in places that Zoe life can't be found. We're looking for meaning and purpose, but we're looking for it in people or in stuff or in promotions or in relationships. And all of those things are incapable of filling us, at least at the level that our souls long to be filled We were created to experience life to the full. So anything short of that, of, of overflowing fulfillment, leaves us restless, leaves us anxious, leaves us longing for more. And usually, at least in my experience, even if you get that thing that you think is going to make you really happy or fill you, whatever it is, maybe it's, maybe it's growing your business beyond six figures or, or getting the girl that you've been after or finally buying the house or, or maybe it's having your own kids or getting a job that pays more than minimum wage. None of these things are bad things. A lot of them are actually good things, but they leave us longing Because they're not the place that Zoe life is found. They're not the place that meaning is found. They're gifts to enjoy. But it's in relationship with the giver of the gifts that we experience fulfillment and the abundant life that Jesus has on offer. You can have all of those things and still be longing. Or you can have none of those things and be completely filled. In other words, all of that stuff is irrelevant for a happy and full life. A great spouse is not going to fulfill the deepest longings in your heart. Even a floor ticket to go and see Taylor Swift in Vancouver. It is not going to change your life like you think it is. I promise. Don't get me wrong. It will be a super fun night while it lasts. And if anyone has an extra ticket, I will gladly come along and sing Shake It Off into the late hours of the night. But at some point, that, that, that concert is going to end and that same restlessness, that same anxiety that we experience is going to follow us home. Because you were made for more. The life you long for is found in Jesus. You want rest for your soul? It's not going to happen by binging another series on Netflix. That might just numb you for a few seconds. might enable you to zone out and forget what's going on in the world around you. You're also not going to find rest for your soul on a vacation by the beach. And I'm all for getting away. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with a good vacation but it will never fully satisfy the life you long for, the fulfillment that you're after. It's only found in Jesus. And he noticed John doesn't just say that Jesus leads to life or points the path that is life. He says that he is the life. He says in him is life and that life that, that's consistent with what Jesus will say about himself a little later on in John 14:10. He says I'm the way, the truth and the life. And this claim that Jesus makes, that he is the life. It's one of the big things that sets Christianity apart in the marketplace of religions. All other religions have a founder who who points to a way to live in order to achieve life or or zen or whatever it may be. And so you find all this moralistic teaching saying do this or live this way or be a good person in order to experience fulfillment or whatever their version of life to the full is. But Christianity says, no, Jesus didn't just come to teach us how to find life. He's not just a prophet pointing out the way that leads to life. He himself is life. And your life, my life, will only have meaning in as much as it's connected to him. But how quickly I forget. And I'm one of the leaders of this church. I preach on this stuff on the regular, but in the midst of real life, in the hustle and the bustle of every day, how quickly I forget that the things of this world are fleeting and incapable of filling the longings of my heart. It's so easy to just get caught up in the rat race of it all, in the rat race of the modern West, and not even realize that it's happening, but the values of our world can seep so deeply into our hearts and our minds. I don't know about you, but I so resonate with the hymn writer who said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like, I know that life is found in him. That nothing can fill me like Jesus can. But sometimes my attention span is like Dorian finding Nemo. Have you ever seen that movie? She forgets everything she knows every 10 seconds. I can so quickly forget. Or at least I can get so distracted. And that's why we need the light. That's why we need a little lamp to light our past. And that's where John goes next in our text. He says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. All humanity. All humanity. These two metaphors, life and light, they're so interconnected. Like in a literal sense, a physical sense, you cannot have life without light. The sun is absolutely essential for life on earth. And that's true in, in, in so many different regards. But even think about our food source, just for an example. The sun shines on plants, which, which grow, the sun shining on them enables them to grow so that we can eat them and receive the nutrients that we need to live. But I'd imagine there's probably some anti-vegetables people in the room. Are you here? Anybody not eat vegetables? I mean, even I love a good steak every once in a while. But even if you're just a carnivore, okay? um, The light shines on the plants, which the animals eat, which provides food for you to eat, okay? And and, and plants do so much more than just feed us. Think about what happens in the process of photosynthesis. None of that could happen without the sun. We also get vitamin D from the sun, which is so important for human life. You know, there's parts of the world, there's even parts of Canada where there is very little light in certain times of the year. Like there might even be only two to three hours of light in certain places, like in the Yukon or or areas like that for several months of the year. And and in places like that, generally speaking, people that live in those places find themselves to be very depressed because you need the light in order to live. That's so why the government actually pays you to live in a lot of these places. And, and John says it's the same thing in our spiritual lives. In order to really live, we need the light. This idea of light, it shows up all throughout John's gospel. But, but it even goes back further than that in the biblical story. Even in the Old Testament, light and fire are often associated with, with the presence of God, with his glory. Like think about the burning bush. Or think about the pillar of fire that led the people of Egypt or the people of Israel out of Egypt. There, there's also several pieces of poetry and there's prophetic literature that describes God's glory as light or as fire. Like there's a super cool story in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses asks God that he says, I want to see you, God. He says, show me your glory. And God says, no, no one can look at me and live. But Moses is persistent. He's like, "No, I want to see you. I want to experience your glory." And so God makes this deal with him. He says that He will cover Himself. That God will cover Himself and will pass by Moses. And once He's passed, Moses can look on at His back and can see Him. And and He'll be there. This is what this is what it says in uh, in Exodus chapter thirty three, describing what happened after Moses had seen God's back. It says, when Moses came down, the mount, came down from Mount Sinai carrying two tablets of the testimony, he didn't know that the skin of his face glowed because he had been speaking with God. And remember, he's just looking at his back at this point. Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, saw his radiant face and held back, afraid to get too close. I wonder what Moses' face would have looked like in that moment. Just glowing. And, and, and this is the closest that anyone in the Old Testament got to actually seeing God. The light of God's presence just radiated in Moses' face. And see, this is one of the reasons why the incarnation of Jesus is so incredible. Because in Jesus, the unseeable God became seeable. The light of God's presence actually came into the world. Isaiah the prophet spoke about it like this. He said that those who were wandering in darkness would see a great light. And that's exactly what happens in the Christmas story. John chapter one says, it says it like this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Remember that's what Moses was asking for. Show me your glory, God to see God's glory. And he, and he did see it in part. He saw God's back, but in the person of Jesus, we actually get to see God face to face. This is a really imperfect illustration Um, But uh, did anyone see the solar eclipse back in 2017 when it showed up on the scene, 2017? Some people did. It was quite an amazing moment And, uh, and a lot has happened in our world since 2017, so if you forgot about it, I totally understand. There was a pandemic, lots of other stuff that went on. But I remember exactly where I was when the eclipse happened and there was all this hype leading up to it. People were booking the day off and aligning their coffee breaks with the timing of the eclipse. And, uh, and, and the thing that people kept saying w- leading up to this event was, don't look at the eclipse without eye protection. It was on the news and it was on, on talk radio. These, these stern warnings that if you don't have proper eye protection, don't look at the eclipse because you'll do permanent eye damage to your eyes. And I tend to be a last minute guy. And so I didn't have a chance to order proper eye protection on Amazon or wherever you were supposed to order it from. And so that morning I went on YouTube and I just, I just searched how to make eye protection for the eclipse. And so I made my own eye protection out of tin foil and a cereal box and whatever else I could find. And, and that eye protection actually did enable me to look at the eclipse. And I don't have that I know of any long-term damage to my eyes, uh, but I was able to stare at the sun and it didn't destroy me. And that's sort of the key word here is sort of. It's sort of like the incarnation of Jesus. In coming to earth, God, God, it's like God gave us glasses to enable us to see him. In all of his glory. But this is where the illustration breaks down. Because Jesus is both the glasses and the eclipse itself. But hopefully you get what I'm saying. The incarnation means that we can look at the sun and live. That we can actually know what God is like. What the light of the world is like. I want to take a, take a moment to talk about the implications of that light. Like, what does it actually mean for us today that the light has come? Well, in short, it means hope. The light has come as this announcement of hope. I absolutely love watching the sun rise in the morning, especially in the spring and summer when the fog and the mist and what we're experiencing right now lifts. And in my living room, I'm able to look right out and have this perfect view of the sunrise. And so one of my morning routines, especially in the spring and summer, is I sit on the couch with my Bible and a cup of coffee and whatever other book I might be reading and, uh, and I wait for the sunrise to happen. And then once the sun begins to peak over the mountains, I just I stop whatever I'm doing and I just, I just look and I stand in awe of the beauty. And it just, it almost feel, every day it almost feels like this announcement of hope that the, the, the night is over, the night has come to an end, and the, and the dawn has come. This new day, this new hope has come. And in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what happened as Jesus was born into the world. It was this announcement to both the seen and the unseen world that the darkness of night was over, that the hope of morning had arrived. There's no longer any reason to be afraid. The light had come. I love the way John says it in verse five. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's another translation that translates it like this. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not put it out. There's this finality to the statement, like it tried And it failed. And that declaration, it's not only good news for Christians, but it's good news for all of you. It's it's good news for the entire world. Because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the curse of death has been reversed. It doesn't have the place that it once had in the universe. The darkness cannot overcome the light. And whether you see it or not, the light of Jesus shines even into the darkest corners of the earth. Every fabric of society, even the darkest and most desolate places, his light is shining. Which means that we don't have to wander in darkness anymore. Because because of the light of Jesus, there is hope. The light has conquered the night. But here's the thing. As you look out your window this morning, or maybe even as you open up your phone and begin to scroll on social media, you look at what's going on in our world, maybe you look at war and oppression and sickness and disease, conflict in the Middle East. Maybe you say it doesn't actually look to me like light is winning. Or, you know, if you look at your own situation, maybe the things that you're walking through, maybe you say, I don't really see a lot of hope. I don't see this hope that you're talking about. Like, it doesn't feel very hopeful. If anything, it feels pretty hopeless. It doesn't feel like light. It actually feels pretty dark. And I don't know all the situations that are represented in this room, but I do know a lot. And there, there are people in this community who are walking through some really difficult stuff. Be it the, love, the loss of a loved one, or depression, or cancer diagnosis, or infertility, or fractured relationships. There is pain and hardship, and it's not only out there. We feel it, we feel it here, too. We feel it. As, as Christians, we walk through this stuff as well, and it's so easy to look at that stuff. It, it makes sense to look at that stuff, the situations, the state of our world, and to ask the very valid question, where is the light in all of that? You know, John, the author, the one who wrote these words, he would have been so well acquainted with these questions. He was one of Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, and he experienced, he actually experienced the darkest day in human history. There was never more, a more dark day, a more hopeless situation than the death of Jesus. Think about it, here's this guy who's leading this revolution of love and healing and hope and introducing the kingdom of God in a way that is just grabbing the hearts of men, women, and children. Like, can you imagine being one of, one of Jesus disciples, John, or one of the other ones who really bought into what Jesus was saying, who believed he was the Messiah, who took him at his word when he said that he was the light of the world. How disorienting would it have been as, as Jesus was then beaten and bruised and hung up to die on a cross. You have to remember, in the context of that of the first century, when Jesus was hung up on, on a Roman cross, it would have absolutely looked like darkness had won. Hope obliterated. Like people must have said, I imagine that people would have, would have taunted Jesus' disciples saying, like, where is your life now? Where is this Jesus, this light of the world you talk about? He's buried in the darkness of a tomb. If ever there was a moment in human history for despair. And here's the thing. If he had stayed in the darkness, if he had stayed in the tomb, then none of us should be here today gathered to sing and to learn and to be in community around this Jesus. If he, if he stayed in that tomb, then the Christmas story would be nothing more than a sentimental memory of a poor Jewish family from Bethlehem, but he didn't stay in the tomb. The light burst forth. See the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest act of defiance on death and darkness. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, death doesn't have the final word. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope that there's life beyond death, life beyond the grave. Death and all its friends have been defeated. And that is bad news for tyrants. That is bad news for the enemy. Because what is the worst thing that he can do to us? Death. But for the Christian, death is just a doorway into resurrection life. The light of Jesus brings hope. And so that is true on the one hand. But here's the difficult reality, is we live in what, the, what many theologians refer to as the, the now and not yet, between the inauguration of Jesus as king and the consummation of his rule and reign. That's actually what the season of Advent is all about. It's this waiting between the, the first coming of the light in Bethlehem in a manger. And the second coming between Jesus coming to earth 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and a second coming in the future where he will come and will do away with darkness once and for all, and he'll make all things new. So like, let me ask this. Is there darkness in our world today? Yes, absolutely there is. Heaps of it. Is there evidence of the principalities and powers of darkness coming to kill, steal, and destroy? Yes, There absolutely is. There is pain and sorrow and destruction all around us. That's the consequence of the fall where sin entered the world. And yet there's also light. There's also hope. We see evidence of the future age being pulled into the present. Evidence of Jesus coming kingdom, even in the here and now. We live in this tension of the now and not yet in the midst of two realities, And that can be a difficult place to live in the midst of waiting. But it also means that we can look at our current situation, the things that we're walking through, the state of the world, and not not be filled with despair, but to even in the midst of hardship, have great hope. Knowing that there is more going on than meets the eye. And that because the light has come, there's hope for the future. Dale Bruner, who's a great theologian and Bible scholar, he points out he points out the significance of the tense in verse 5. And maybe this is a bit geeky or nerdy, but, but bear with me for a moment, okay? I think it's important. The tense that John uses in verse 5, up until this point, up until we get to verse 5, John has been, been using all past tense in talking about Jesus. But then in verse 5, he switches to present tense. See, John doesn't say the light shone in the darkness, past tense. He says the light shines in the darkness. You could even translate that as shines on, still even now. The light continues to shine in the darkness. And here's the question. What is the primary way that Jesus shines in the darkness today? It's through his church. It's through us. See, as we've been saying, Jesus is the light of the world. But here's where it gets a bit confusing. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus also says that we are the light of the world. In some places, he says, I'm the light of the world. But then on the Sermon on the Mount, which we went through this summer, he says, you are the light of the world. So which is it, Jesus? Are you the light? Or are we the light? The answer is both. He is the light of the world, but as his followers, as his people on the earth, he invites us to be part of his light the world project. We are active participants in, in Jesus' mission to shine light even to the darkest places of society. And, and, and that's what we saw the early church do. In in, in those first few centuries, especially, as, as the early church began to follow this Jesus. And and began to align their lives with him, the way they spent their money, the way they viewed their bodies and cared for the poor and marginalized and stood up for the oppressed and and stood up for equality and the sanctity of life. It made this massive impact on the world around them. And the light of Jesus began to break in even to the horrible Greco-Roman world. Like, for example, did you know that Christians were the first one, the first ever people to, to invent a hospital? Before Jesus came on the scene, caring for the sick was seen as weak. You would never help a sick or diseased person because like survival of the fittest, that was the idea of the day, survival or natural selection. And so if someone was sick, they probably deserved to be sick, so let them be. But Jesus' followers had this deep conviction that all humans were made in the image of God and all humans had this immeasurable value. And so with that conviction and with the teachings of the New Testament, this growing movement of Christians... began to extend care to all people. Not just those who could afford health care, but all people. It was also Christians that started the first orphanage. You know, before Jesus, it was it was common practice in the in the ancient near sorry, in the in the first century, to throw your your unwanted babies outside the city gates, just to discard them. Infanticide was completely normal and an acceptable thing to do. But followers of Jesus believed in the sanctity of life. And so they would go around and they would collect these little children and and they would raise them as their own, loving them and caring for them. I could go on and on. So many of the things we think are normal or are obvious ways to think and understand the world, they weren't normal before Jesus, before the light came into the world. Even the desire to see racial equality or gender equality before Jesus, that was not a thing. Inequality was an accepted and celebrated part of life. Like listen to these words from the famous philosopher Plato. He said, justice, this is how he defined justice. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. Or his student Aristotle said it like this. He said that the fact that some should rule and others should be ruled over is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. <laughs> that same guy, Aristotle, he, he, this is a zinger of a quote. He said that women are just deformed men. These were the ideologies of the day before Jesus came in. Horrific stuff. And I share these quotes to say, so much of our society has been impacted by Jesus and his church. Before, even the fact that we hear those quotes and we're so put off by it is evidence of the light coming into the world. People who lived, who who loved and served the way that we see people doing today, they were considered weak. See, even even the fact that we're turned off by those those quotes from Plato and Aristotle, they're evidence of the impact that the light has had on the world. Jesus literally flipped the world upside down. And then as Christians took their role seriously to radiate Jesus' life into the world, to be carriers of God's presence wherever they went, it absolutely changed the course of human history. And it continues to change the world today. The light continues to shine in the darkness. Even today, in 2023, 2023, even in Port Moody and Coquitlam, in the lower mainland. You know, as recent as yesterday, Do you know, as a church, and I see many of you who were there yesterday helping with this, we hosted this event called Christmas Village. And I think there's 120 volunteers from across the three campuses of our church that gathered together for Christmas Village. Essentially, we're able to to host this this beautiful, warm Christmas meal for low-income families to come and to sit around the table and to be family with one another and with us. And we gave out gifts and gift cards for food over the holidays. Just a beautiful way to extend welcome and warmth to those who are in need. That is the light breaking into the darkness. Every time we give out a new pair of shoes or clothes to someone in need through our, through our clothing ministry, or, or we fill a grocery cart full of food through our food pantry, we are allowing the light of Jesus to shine through us. Every time we clean up the streets of Port Moody, or we do Love My City days, that is the light breaking into the darkness. I wonder, as you look ahead at this Christmas season, I don't know, what are we, two weeks out, I think, from, from Christmas, Where might God be inviting you to shine his light, to be a carrier of hope? Maybe it's inviting a a lonely neighbor to join you for Christmas dinner. Maybe it's advocating for peace amidst family tensions this Christmas. As you go into that space, rather than being part of the problem, it's being a person of peace and shalom. Maybe it's giving extravagantly to our Christmas Eve offering and all that we're trying to do in the Middle East. I think that video was played early in the service. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just keeping your head up when you're in a grocery store, (laughs) rather than standing in line and looking down at your phone, waiting to get to your turn in line. Maybe it's just looking up and engaging with the people around you, encouraging, making eye contact, being kind and generous. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are called to bring his light into the dark and desolate places of the world. So as we close, I just want to summarize. See, while there is absolutely evidence of darkness breaking into the world, there is also evidence of great light. And even though we live in this overlapping tension of of the age that is and the age to come, we can be filled with so much hope that the darkness has not and will not overcome the light. And when Jesus comes again, oh man, what a beautiful day that's going to be upon Jesus' second coming. When he comes again, darkness will be eradicated once and for all. Here's how John, the same one who penned these verses that we've been working through, here's how he described the future age. This is in Revelation chapter 21. He said, in that city, there will be no more night. There will be no more need for light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. That's our future hope, is this city in the distance with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more darkness, it's a place where the light of Christ radiates so brightly that there's not even need for the sun. The light has come. And there is hope. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I am so grateful. We are so grateful that you chose to come for us, that you came into the world, that this, the unseeable God became seeable in the person of Jesus. I thank you for all the implications of the light breaking into the darkness. And I pray for us as a community, as Rail City Campus, as we look at the days to come leading up to Christmas, would you put on our hearts the ways that you are calling us, that you are inviting us to be light in dark places. We want to continue your work. We want to join in on your Light the World project. And so use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash railcity to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the Rail City campus of C.A. Church.